Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Wow, not much excitement, I guess. <laughs> All right, Josh is excited. We got one person excited for Thanksgiving. All right, well, tonight, um, it's Thanksgiving, so that is the theme, so we'll be talking about that. We're going to be going through Psalm 50, the whole thing. Um, it's I'm super excited for what God will have for us, um, and as we look at Thanksgiving, obviously it's a holiday that started in America, so it's only a couple hundred years, um, but it's a holiday that definitely started with one of thankfulness towards God, so that's a good thing, a good holiday, but as with many things in life and our society especially, it's moved away from its original meaning and also away from God. Um, as Christians, though, we don't necessarily look at what society and how society views things. Uh, we're, we're lo we look at what Christ says, what God says, and we obey him um, as our Lord. Um, and, and it's not, and we see through in the scriptures and through Jesus' life and, and the church history that thankfulness is important to our walk with Christ, and it's a natural overflow, but it's also a command to us as well. Um, and tonight, as we're looking at Psalm 50, we're going to see that thankfulness is essential in our response to the gospel, our walk with God, and also our repentance or our coming back to God. And so thankfulness is a key aspect of our response to the gospel, our walk with God, and our repentance, our turning back towards God. So let's pray for our time. God, uh, we thank you that um, we have something to thank you for, um, Lord, that you alone, that you, if nothing else happened, you alone are, we are to thank you, God, for who you are. Um, but Lord, you did so much immensely more by dying for us on the cross, by sending us your spirit so that we are not uh, treated as orphans, but as your sons and daughters, God. Um, so we praise you, God. And we pray that you would change us tonight, um, that you'd reveal to us um, your heart, reveal to us your spirit, um, that we might know you more, God. And uh, we also pray that you would, um, for those that may not know you as their Lord and Savior, God, that you would um, open their hearts and their minds to, to know you and to see you for who you are, God. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right, so open up Psalm 50 if you can. Um, this psalm is a psalm of Asaph, because uh, most psalms you're like, oh, it's written by David, but this one's actually from Asaph. Asaph's one of, uh, he actually wrote 12 uh, psalms, and this is the first one in the book of Psalms. Asaph was one of the worship leaders in the tabernacle during King David's reign, but was also considered a prophet because a lot of his psalms reference the future, as we'll see a, a little bit in, in today's uh, message as well. And so that's a little bit about Asaph um, and his background. So we're just going to jump right in Psalm 50 and read verses 1 through 6. It says this, The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes, he does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heaven above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Selah. 
And so Asaph, as a worship leader, is doing what he does. <laughs> He's starting off with worship. He's declaring clearly and describing clearly who God is and what powerful we, words we have here. And we could spend hours just considering just a few of these attributes of God, these descriptions of God. And, and so it's a beautiful start and, and an example for us in worship to start with these words. But before we get into these, some of these things very briefly, just notice that Asaph is not directing this message or this worship to a group of people. He's declaring this to God, univer- uh, uh, about God universally. And so he's making a truth statement, a fact statement about this is who God is. And I think that's important because us as church people, as maybe people that are um, in community and in fellowship with God, uh, we're like, of course, this is fact. But I think it's important that in our society that we live in today, many people say, oh, that's your God, or that's your truth, or my truth. And sometimes we soften the reality that God is. It doesn't really matter what people believe. It doesn't really matter people's opinions even. My opinion does not matter. Your opinion does not matter. God is. And I think that's important for us to remind ourselves in our society because it's the opposite is being taught and so truth is not dependent on our opinions or beliefs and I would say that as Christians we need to have grace we need to have understanding that people have not may have not heard or come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior but we do need to confidently proclaim truth and proclaim who God is and so as we are confident in worship in say a church service or a church setting We are also called to be just as confident outside of the church setting and on in our workplace, in the grocery store, on the streets, wherever we might go, that we boldly proclaim truth. And that is the truth of who God is. And as we boldly proclaim truth, even in these first six verses that Asaph goes through, which is a heart of worship, we're going to be mocked. Sure, we're going to be looked at as strange. Absolutely. And we're also even going to be mocked by what people declare as, as church people, as people that claim to follow God. They will also say, well, you're being a little too blunt or too truthful or too whatever it might be. But I think we as people, as worshipers, as we grow in love with God and know him more, we're going to be completely bold with proclaiming God, who God is regardless of the consequences. Yes, there's grace in all of that. But I think, especially in our society, we soften the reality of truth of who God is. And so let's go through a couple of these things that that it says who God is. The first is it says he's the mighty one and all-powerful. It says that he's God the Lord, which sounds kind of strange because it's like that's so the same thing. He's God and the Lord. But the word God is, is really for, is Elohim. It's referring to the judge, the, the supreme power, if you will. But then Jehovah, Lord, that, that's how it's translated is Lord, is the, per, like the personal name of God, if you will. In the Old Testament, Jehovah is used. Yahweh is used for the name of God. So they're saying that Yahweh, the God, is the ultimate being, the ultimate judge, the ruler of the whole earth. He's saying that in, in the psalm, Asaph is saying that God is omnipresent and pursuing. He says he's going to the ends of the earth. He doesn't leave out any people group. He goes to all of the ends of the earth with his presence, with his message, um, with his spirit. 
he, it says that God is perfect in beauty, and he's coming out of Zion, which is, is talking about Israel, that he's beautiful not only to Zion, to the people of Israel, but beautiful to the whole world. So he's not a God for just one people group. He's a God that is pursuing all people and all places. It also says that he's coming and he will be known by all. It, notice that how it talks about devouring fire that he does not keep silence in verse 3. Um, there's a mighty tempest, a mighty storm around him. And it's interesting if you look, and we won't go there, but Exodus 19, six through nine, 16 through 19, when Moses um, is at the mountain receiving um, the, or experiencing God's presence, it's very similar language. That God came in that way to Moses, and he also is coming and will come in the same way without silence. So he's going to be known and coming as a fire and as a tempest. And that might sound like that's not very good news. <laughs> that he's coming with fire, with tempest, with storm, with, with no silence. He's coming loud. But then if you look at verse, uh, verse 5, it says, In the midst of this coming in judgment, he says, Gather to me my faithful ones, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And so these people, he's not coming in fire and tempest and, and judgment, but he's coming to gather them to himself. And that is good news, that not only is God holy, not only is God everywhere and all-powerful and Jehovah God, but he's a God who care, takes care of his own, and that he's promised again and again, and he always proves himself faithful. And then it goes on, it talks about verse 5 that he's, um, or verse 6, that he's righteous and that he's a judge and a good judge. And, and I think righteous judge go together because as we know, judges are not always perfect in this world, but God always make the right and just decision in his judgments. We don't really understand justice until we know God because there is much injustice in the world. And to all of these things, and as you hopefully even this week consider these first six verses, I think sometimes the only answer that we can give to describe this and describe God is who is like God. Psalm 71, 19 says, For your righteousness, O God, reaches to the heavens. You have done great things. O God, who is like you? And I think worship is not something that we are to fully grasp of who God is and who we're worshiping. If I fully understand who God was, it wouldn't be worth worshiping because I could worship myself. So God is so much more greater than we could ever grasp or imagine. And sometimes we can't say any words but say, God, who is like you, righteous in all your ways. So let's notice again in verse 5 here, though, it says, Again, gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And God gathers to himself faithful ones who made a covenant with God, as it says there. Uh, and a covenant in its simplest form is a promise made between two people that, is, that cannot be broken. And the old covenant, there's various subsets of the covenants, like the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant. We won't go through all of those. But in general, the old covenant, the Old Testament, was centered on sacrifice. And you can go through the book of Leviticus and, and a host of other books throughout the Old Testament. It talks about sacrifice and how God gave that instruction 
for the people as a way to forgiveness, to purification, to right relationship with God. And so it's certainly talking about the Old Testament people that were looking forward to the ultimate kingdom of God, but was satisfying the wrath of God through animal sacrifice. But at the same time, this is also referring to the sacrifice that we believe. We are under the covenant of sacrifice still today. We're not sacrificing animals at the altar, but we are believing in the, the Lamb of God who sacrificed himself for us. And just to show again that the sacrifice is not just an Old Testament thing, Hebrews 9.22 says this in the New Testament, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so God cannot forgive us unless there is a sacrifice, because that would make God unjust. God has to punish sin. And so we are still under the covenant of sacrifice, so we are still included in this, we're grafted into this promise that we are under the covenant by sacrifice through the shed blood of Jesus. And so this verse is the faithful ones who had the faith in God, both past, present, and future, before Jesus, during Jesus, and after Jesus' reign, that God will bring them into himself. He will save them from the wrath and justice, judgment of God. And so this is something to be thankful for, that we are grafted into this sacrifice, this covenant of sacrifice, that we do not have to face the fire and the tempest and the, the vengeance and wrath of God because of Jesus, because of sacrifice. And, and I would also like to make the argument, too, that, yes, we are thankful for that, but I don't believe that we can be, believe in the covenant of sacrifice without thanksgiving. Because if you think about it, that thing, animal sacrifice, or the person, God, Jesus, is literally dying in your place, substitutionary atonement. If we understand the gravity and the depth of the sacrifice that was made on our behalf, we can only respond in thankfulness. And so if you think about it, as we believe in Jesus, which is a common phrase, which is good, because that's what the Bible says we call to believe in Christ alone. But within that belief, there is always going to be thankfulness if it's a true belief. Many people say they believe in God, probably 70% of America, if not more, believe in God or believe in Jesus or something like that. But does their belief produce thanksgiving? And if their belief produces thanksgiving, their life is going to look like that accordingly. And so if our belief is superficial, there probably won't be thanksgiving in our belief. But as we are thankful for the atoning, atoning sacrifice of Christ, then our belief is going to be founded on thankfulness for what he has done. And getting back to this section as a whole, um, it, I would say that it draws us into worship. Our view of God is most likely too small, as I mentioned before. Um, I pray that God would enlarge our, our heart and our understanding of who God is, but I know even after decades, of, I know people that have followed Jesus for decades and decades, so much longer than me, that still can't even fathom who God is because he's so big. And so I think as, as this desire for thankfulness that we, we want to have, I think we need to get stop sometimes. We get caught up in the motions of life 
And I think sometimes even the motions of church life, that we're constantly doing ministry, constantly going to the next Bible study, and, and all those things are good, and, and we need community as a believer. But do we ever stop and consider just who God is? Just by yourself or with a small group of people, do we remind ourselves who he is and what he has done? Um, sometimes do we need to or do we stop from the church traditions for just even a minute to consider who God is? And I know that sounds sacrilegious or ironic to stop from church traditions, but it'll make sense in a few minutes as we go through the next passage. So I'd encourage us to stop sometimes and practice this considering who God is. Even if you've been following Jesus for decades, there is more to know about God. And this will drive us to humility, worship, and ultimately thankfulness towards him. And just at the end of verse 6, it says Selah, which is stop and rest, which I think is a fitting location. He just praised God for six verses. And so he says stop before we go into the next part. And we could stop the message here tonight that we can be thankful for who God is. Uh, but the psalmist goes forward, and I think God has some stuff for us in the next verses that are important and that are centered on thankfulness as well. So let's read verse 7. Asaph here turns a little bit, and rather than addressing the masses that this is who God is, this is how good he is, it says in verse 7, Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. So he goes from worshiping God and declaring to all the world. And now he's saying, okay, Israel, the people of God, the people that you would think were already under that covenant of sacrifice. He's now talking to those people. And notice it says, I am God, your God. And so these people are claiming, are, are saying, God is our God. We're following Yahweh, following Jehovah. But God has judgment against them. And this does not mean that God takes back his promises of if you are under the covenant of sacrifice, it no longer matters if you do something wrong, because that would be works-based salvation. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about these people that if you ask them on the street, they'll say, yeah, I believe in God. I follow God. I follow Yahweh. I follow Jehovah. And he says, these things I have against those people. And so it's not a positive and encouraging message, but rather a warning and a judgment against them. And these people may have responded of, who, me? Like, I'm your child. And they might have gotten defensive. But regardless, God had this message for them. So let's read verses 8 through 13, this section of the message against the people of God. It says this in verse 8, Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you, your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your fields. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? And so these people from this passage seem to continually be doing sacrifices. They're visiting the temple. They're following probably almost every tradition, religious tradition that they could handle. God acknowledges that they're doing it. So he doesn't say like, oh, I didn't know you were at the temple. He knows where they are. God knows all. He knows our hearts. He knows our minds. 
He knows what they're doing. He doesn't say, don't go to the temple or don't make sacrifices anymore. He's not saying that. So then what are they missing? What is the judgment? And from here, this passage, we see that the people are doing something for God as if he needs their help. They are prideful in what they are doing and and little regard to actually what God wants, what God desires. And so God even makes the statements here that all of the cattle are already his. So what is the big deal of bringing one of his cattle? They're already his. And so it's showing the point that he does not need us or he does not need our physical gifts. It says, do I drink the blood of goats? Do I really actually physically need the goats? And he's like, no, of course not. It's a rhetorical question, but of course not. And the thing is, he commanded the sacrifice to be the outward conduit, so the outward channel of forgiveness. So it almost seems like, God, are you changing the script now? But he's not. It's the outward conduit of forgiveness, but it's showing what is actually believed inside our hearts and minds. And so he saw through the sacrifices and into the hearts and minds, and that he was not pleased with. Because these people had religious pride. They had, tr- they had pride in their traditions, pride in what they've done for God, and say, I'm pretty awesome. God needs me. I brought ten cattle, and that guy brought one. How awesome am I? And, and it's sad, because they do so much work. They're, they're trying so hard, but they're trusting in their work rather than the work of the sacrifice. And Charles Spurgeon uh, on this topic said, uh, just a quick phrase, he says, what, he in- what God intended for their instruction, they made their confidence. And I think that's really important for us, even as New Testament believers under the new covenant of the sacrifice of Jesus, that oftentimes we say, well, I'm following the rules. I'm reading every day. I'm memorizing scripture. I'm going to church. I'm doing all these things I did public service, and all these things, and feeding the poor, all these things. But where are our hearts and our minds? And that's what God is looking at. And I think this is a very dangerous, but also easy place to be. From the outside looking in, these people looked like the holiest of people. They were so dedicated and love and service for God. That's how people probably viewed them, and that's clearly how they viewed themselves. But in reality, they were dead and far from God. And so we can go to church, go to Bible studies, perform like Bible memorization and memorize entire books of scripture. But the reality is many of us at some point of our Christian lives may have fallen into the habit of going through the motions, having a confidence in ourselves and what we're doing in the church rather than the work of the sacrifice of Jesus. And so let me ask you and and myself, are the things that you are doing giving you confidence and faith in God, or is your confidence and faith placed in God himself? And I would say it can't be both. If Sunday church service or Wednesday night church service, whatever service was taken from you, where would you go and what would you do? Would you still be following God? If your preferred tradition was taken from you, such as your ministry or outreach, how would you react? And that will, those couple of those questions will answer, is your confidence in what you do or is it in the sacrifice that God provided through Jesus? And so 
I think that there's definitely a lot of guiltiness in the Christian, the greater sea church in America, um, because that's what we know around us. So then the question is, how do we respond to this situation? And so let's read verse 14 to 15. God gives three things, very simple. Okay, those who are playing the part of, of Christianity, but their hearts are far from God, what do we do? So he, he says in verse 14 to 15 these things. He says, Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving, and perform your vows to the Most High, and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. And so the first thing that God says in response to a person who's just playing the part, their confidence is in their traditions and religious acts, he says, offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And other translations even more clearly, I think, say, make thanksgiving your sacrifice. So rather than do more, rather be more thankful. Check your heart. And I think this is so important that the first response is not be better, do more but rather, essentially, be more thankful. Come back to the sacrifice, the covenant of sacrifice, and the real meaning behind the sacrifice, which is our heart, our belief, and thankfulness towards God. And again, this is not an Old Testament thing. Hebrews 13, 15 says, Through him, Jesus, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And so from a New Testament perspective, how do we respond to living a religious and works-filled life? We offer up a praise to God, a thanksgiving to God. And then as Hebrews 13 says, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name, we acknowledge Jesus. And that sounds simple because it is. It's not a complicated message, the gospel, but it is hard because we have to lay down our lives. We have to lay down our desires and we have to turn and say, God, we need you. And that's the requirement of thanksgiving. And so think about it. When we are in sin, living a ritual-based life rather than a faith-based life, the path of repentance is actually thankfulness. It's bringing us back to thanking us, thanking God for the sacrifice he made. So we're changing our mind and heart towards God instead of ourselves. So thanksgiving, thankfulness is part of the repentance process for the believer the second thing he says after our heart is made right by the sacrifice of thanksgiving it says to perform your vows to the most high and i would almost summarize i would summarize that as obedience okay your heart is right now get back to the word of god get back to what god actually commands and not just what everyone else around you tells you to do and go and follow through And so many times we stop at belief and then we do nothing. If belief and repentance and thankfulness is real, it's always going to lead towards obedience, towards change, if it is real. God promises that throughout the scriptures that fruit is going to come. And so those who love Jesus, those who love his sacrifice, will obey his commands. But it is not out of mandate, but out of love. And how different that is from our society right? That it says, do this because we told you, do this because we told you. I do it because I love Jesus, and I know that he is able to do anything, and that he is right, he is true, so I'm going to do whatever God commands, and I hope that is all of ours, and I pray that he works in us more, that our obedience comes forth out of love. 
And the third thing it says, and I think it's fitting that it's last, in response to our, our sin, in response to our living a religious-based life rather than faith-based, he says, call upon me in the day of trouble. Cry out to God. And I think, I, I know that we all face trouble. Some of you may be going through trouble today, tonight, and you may go through trouble tomorrow. At some point, you're going to face trouble. God j- doesn't say, offer more sacrifices, go to church more. He just says, cry out to me. And I also think it's fitting that even if we fail in thankfulness, even if we fail in obedience, because we're going to, cry out to God for help and he will deliver you. And so thankfulness, obedience, and as we get in trouble, as we fail, as we, we mess up, cry out to God. And what a, what a blessing it is that God is not saying, you got to shape up. He's saying, I'm here to help. Just come to me. And the result of this, as it says in uh, verse, uh, I lost my place, sorry. Verse 15, it says that he will deliver us and you shall glorify me. At the end of the story, at the end of the game, at the end of life, God will get the glory as we are saved, as we are delivered from our sin, from the judgment that we deserve. So God calls us to be thankful as a part of repentance of our religious-filled lives. So the next section we're going to go into, it's going to talk to a different group of people, but in some sense, it's actually similar. Verse 16, I'll read this. It says, But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? And so God is now talking to the wicked, which I I think rightly so, but immediately we almost think, okay, those are the people that don't fear God. Those are the people that just blow off any sacrifice altogether. I think, yes, they are looped into this uh, next judgment. But I would also say that this is for the people that are actually still doing the sacrifices, that are going to temple, that are going to church, going to Bible studies, reading their Bible even on their own. Because in verse 16 it says, that what right have you to recite my statutes and to have the covenant on their lips? These people knew scripture. They knew the law. So clearly they had some experience in the temple, in the things of God. And he's talking to these people and he's calling them wicked. And so I would say it's twofold. One, to the people of the church that are living hypocrisy-filled lives and also those who have just completely blown off God Um, and are considered wicked by God. And so verse 17 through 21, we're going to go through and and talk about the things that mark these people, the, the people that God considers wicked. It says this, For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. And so real quick, a couple of these things that mark a wicked person in God's eyes. This is not an exhaustive list. This is just a few things that clearly were going on at the time. But the first is hating discipline, and I would characterize that as complete just rebellion. Not just messing up and, oh man, I forgot that law. That happens, we can cry out to God. But completely throwing it out. 
hating discipline, casting the words behind you. These people knew the Bible, knew scripture. They knew the, the law, but they threw it out. And many people are like that, including people and kids that grew up in the church are now just throwing the scriptures out because they're living their lives. So that there's rebellion for these people. The second thing is that they not only approved of evil, but they joined in with the evildoers, the, the adulterers in this case. But I would say in general, the evildoers. And Romans 1.25 in the New Testament says, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And so these people, they know God's decree. They know what God says. And they not only say they turn a blind eye or something, they practice it as well. They know, know full well what they are getting into, and therefore they will be judged according to God. The next thing is wicked talk and deceitfulness, lying. Talks about your tongue frames deceit, a, a mouth that's free reign for evil, one that is just, you can't control the tongue. And yes, certainly, we have our moments. It, it's hard to be perfect because it's impossible. But these are people that just have no regard for these things. But it's also... Interesting, he goes on again, ver, uh, the, num the fourth thing that he kind of characterized people as is people that accuse others that are seemingly close, so the family members it was talking about, and also slander and gossip, and those who are close to you especially. And if you look at these lists and, and consider these even later this week, a lot of these things we're guilty of. I know I've been guilty of these in my walk with Christ. And so it's concerning that it's not just something for the completely just disregard those who disregard God, but it's actually, we are not far off from this. The snowball can roll and roll and roll, get a little, little bit bigger each 20 feet, and it becomes into this category. And so I think we need to rather than point fingers at people, again, remember that these things we can fall to as well. And again, this, study, this list is not only to those that completely reject God, but those who actually are within the church attendance, the temple attendance, that these people are considered wicked in God's eyes. And so what is God's response to wickedness, to those that are wicked? Verse 21, I'll read it again, verse 21. It says, these things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. And so God is silent at the time. And in response to that silence, the people actually said that they were right with God, that they were one like yourself as in God, that they were in God's camp, on God's side. But God's silence is not always approval. If we say, well, God didn't convict me yet, it really doesn't mean much. <laughs> but silence also does not mean it's judgment either. And so we have to remember that if we go through a desert place, that God, we're not hearing from God, that we're going through hard times, it doesn't mean that he's against you either. Sometimes, and a lot of times, we are called to wait. 
But in this case of what is right and wrong, what is righteous and wicked, righteous and evil, the Spirit of God through the Word of God has already made a clear mark as to what is evil or not. And so we can be unashamed that this is wickedness if the Scripture says it. If the Spirit of God clearly says it in the Bible, that we can be bold. Remember, as I talked about bold in worship, we can also be bold in declaring what is right and wrong. And if you look at the prophets of the day when the people of Israel were doing what was right in their own eyes, the judges and the prophets were very clear in what was right and wrong. Did they succeed in church growth? No, but they were faithful. And so God sees these sins and these, this wickedness, this rebellion, and he's silent. But at, at one point, as it says at the end of 21, he says, Now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. And remind ourselves in 2 Corinthians 5.10, it says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. God may be silent now for both the wicked and those that are under the covenant of sacrifice, but he ultimately will judge all people, including us, one day. So let's go on verse 22 to 23, but let's start with just read verse 22. It says, Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. And so again, he's referring to these people that are wicked, but he doesn't refer to them as necessarily like the scum of the earth or the wicked. It's the people who forget God, which sounds pretty light, like, oh, that's pretty easy to do. And I'm not saying forget as in, oh, I didn't know who Jesus was. I forgot who Jesus was. Like we all, most people know who Jesus is. We know that there's a God above us. But this word forget actually means to kind of put to the side, put in a compartment, put in that Sunday morning compartment and never take him out. And so it's not referring to the people that just don't know about God and forget his name, forget memory verses, but it's those who have put him by the side and put something else on the throne, something else at the forefront. So oftentimes we can put God in the back burner. We can stop caring. We can down prioritize him. We can uh, prioritize our our pleasures. We can prioritize sports and music and uh, just work. Family even can be something that down prioritizes God. And so I would ask the question, do we not also sometimes forget about God? And I'm not saying this to show that like you're going to be judged. I'm showing, I'm trying to share this with you and to convict you. I'm sharing this that the people that we are saying will be judged are not that different than us. That we often fall to these things as well. And so in that day when God comes in and justice and rebukes and charges, he's going to tear those people apart, it says. And I'm not going to make that sound any better. It is what it is. That's what God is going to do. Many people will say it's not fair, that it's too harsh, that they don't want to follow a God that acts in this way. But this is justice. This is right judgment because God is the righteous judge. And we should ask ourselves, do we actually have the right to question God at some level? We should be dead. We shouldn't even be alive. Who are we to question God? Who is like the Lord? We just worshiped him. So how can we question him as well when his justice comes forth? 
And just think about, we didn't create anything. We didn't create the world. We have no authority over God. But I think we need to come to a point where it's like, this is something I actually deserve. And once we understand the wrath of God and how he's going to tear people apart, that he's going to judge people, I would say actually the sacrifice of God becomes that much bigger. Jesus in the, in the gospel says, he who has been forgiven much loves much. And so it is a good thing to meditate on the wrath of God because you will be encouraged by the, the love and the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. But at the same time, you're going to see the wrath of God being real, and we're also going to be put on mission, that as we consider the, the wrath of God, we're going to see that there are so many people around us that are, are going to perish. And I go out to the campuses twice a week and try a third time a week if I can on the streets, and it's just overwhelming sometimes because I don't meet any, many Christians. <laughs> and, and I'm sure um, you're at workplaces and things like that. Um, so hearing that God is going to tear the wicked apart and judge them for eternity should not cause us to laugh, not cause us to just kind of, oh, well, at least I'm saved. But it's going to cause us to go towards them. It's just as Jesus went to the ends of the earth, we are called to as well. And so I hope that you meditate and this is a weird Thanksgiving sermon, but you meditate on the wrath of God and the justice of God because it actually will lead you to thanksgiving and it will also lead you um, to pursuit of other people in light of the wrath of God. So then let's read verse 22, he does, or 23. He doesn't leave it off as this, as, okay, I'm coming to judge. They have no chance. And I think this is the beauty of the mercy of God. So let's read verse 23. It says, the one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. And so, again, these people are wicked. They, they are about to be torn apart by God. What is God's offer to them? What is God saying? Okay, because you are wicked, this is what you are called to do. He says, offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving. The same exact thing we've been talking about of the promise of the sacrifice of thanksgiving that he's going to spare us from judgment. And then he calls us in our religiosity to uh, give a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And thirdly, in our wickedness to perform a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And so again, thanksgiving takes our focus off of ourselves, our desires, our pleasures, our wickedness, and onto the deliverer, the rescuer, the savior, Jesus Christ. And so God wants us to look at him because he is the only way to save us. He's not saying, look at me because I'm going to judge you. He's saying, look at me. I'm offering you a sacrifice through Jesus. And he's waiting for you. He's waiting for me. And the question, only question is, will you come to him? But so many people reject, but he's still going to keep pursuing, keep knocking on the door. And then the second thing he says at the end of the verse is, it's to the one who orders his way rightly. And I think, again, it's not too different than the response of the religious person. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving, and then obedience, conduct, be blameless, be right. And that's actually what repentance is, is acknowledging Jesus, acknowledging that we need him, that he is the only way, and then asking him to change us. And that will only respond in change and obedience in devotion towards God. And it's interesting, those that have a great outward appearance of religiosity 
but also those that are completely wicked and destitute. It's the same message, the same response. It's repentance. It's thanksgiving to God and then turn and follow him. And I love how it's the same message for all people, regardless of our economic status, regardless of our background, our social status, where we live in the world. It doesn't matter. The message is the same. And the result of our thankfulness is always going to be towards the right way, towards God himself, that God's going to change us. And as it says here, it says, I will show the salvation of God. And if you just read verse 22 and how God's going to tear people apart, which he will, he also in the same breath says, I will show you the salvation of God, just come to me. And there's no better reward There's nothing that lasts longer. There's nothing more certain. There's nothing that gives us such joy and hope and peace than the shed sacrifice of Jesus, the salvation of God. And I I hope and and ask you that will you join me and, and all of us and will we all join together to live a life of thankfulness towards God and his salvation gift that he has given us. And if you fall, or more like when you fall, if you get caught up in ritual or tradition, if you forget, if you down-prioritize God and his presence, will you respond in repentance and faith through thankfulness for Christ's sacrifice and his willingness to forgive? And lastly, as it talked about in verse 22, will you see the gravity of the judgment and the wrath of God? And in turn, respond in thankfulness, but also to go and tell everyone of how merciful and righteous and just God is. And so we're going to step into a time of communion, and and I would say that this is an awesome time to consider, have you been stuck in a ritual, stuck in the traditions and, and trusting and putting your confidence in your works and what you're doing and what church you're attending and all that? Or are you stuck in wickedness, just rebellion? And Jesus is knocking on your door and my door, and is willing to draw near to you. And so I, pre- I would encourage you as, as we sing this next song, pray to God and ask him to forgive. He's willing. He'll show you the salvation of God. And if you have been saved, he'll welcome you back, and he'll draw even nearer to you. Repentance is not just for the wicked. It's also for the righteous. And, and as you give to him these sacrifices of thanksgiving, Thank him for his, his sacrifice and willingness to die for you. Be confident that if you ask for forgiveness, he will give it to you 110% of the time. And then we'll celebrate together in a few minutes of the shed blood of Jesus Christ as we do communion. So the worship team can come up and I'll pray for us. Lord, um, we are unworthy to uh, even speak of you, let alone to talk to you. Um, and to be in your presence, God. Um, Lord, we thank you for your sacrifice through Jesus. Thank you for grafting us in, in the covenant of sacrifice. And Lord, thank you that it is once and for all that we have been forgiven and declared as your sons and daughters, inheriting the riches of your glory, God. Lord, I I know that there is um, guilt Um, whenever we're in the presence of God, that you, you draw us and, and point out what is not of you that is not righteous and not holy. And so I pray that even if there's one person, one thing that is being convicted, Lord, I pray that you would um, forgive us, Lord, that you would make us more like you, God. 
Um, Lord, we forgive us of our religiosity. Forgive us for our wickedness and our rebellion. Um, Lord, even under the, the umbrella of Christ, Lord, forgive us. And thank you that you have a promise to not only forgive us, but to spare us from your judgment. And not only just to spare us from your judgment, but to welcome us at your table. Um, thank you for the riches and the glory of that promise, God. And I pray that you'd speak to us in these next couple minutes um, and change us, we pray. In your name, Jesus.